Well, um, I know it's been a little while. So doing this monthly, I think I said the exact same thing last month, uh, it makes it a little hard to remember where we were last. So I'm going to try to reorient us a little bit. Uh, last month, uh, we looked at the way that 1 Corinthians chapter 10 draws the connection between the Lord's Supper that Christians and the church partakes in and Israel and some of the things that Israel underwent in the wilderness and uh, around the tabernacle and the temple. Uh, and actually, there were quite a few connections. Uh, as we're looking at the, the Old Testament moving into the New Testament, we, we can begin in, in some way all the way back to the garden. So if you look at Adam in the garden, he had a garden full of delights provided by God, right? When we, when we studied uh, uh, Genesis chapter 2 and 3, we saw that, that Eden means this place of delight, this garden of delight. And so he had everything to him. He only had one restriction. Um, it had been provided by God. Israel had manna from heaven provided by God. Uh, and we, Jesus tells us, uh, we have Jesus, the bread from heaven, to give us life, which is a parallel to the manna from heaven. It is the, the fulfillment of the manna from heaven. He is the new and better manna. Uh, we saw that we see that in, in, in the book of John. We also saw that a little bit in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, another couple, couple parallels that we saw, Israel had water from the rock. Do you remember? They were thirsty in the wilderness. There's nothing to drink. They had water from the rock to give them life in the wilderness. We have the water of life in Christ, which is the blood from Jesus on the cross to rescue us from slavery to sin and in certain death and give us eternal life. And that is symbolized in the cup that we share. So we have uh, manna, we have water, blood, uh, keep more parallels that we looked at. Uh, Israel's elders uh, at the time that the, the, cover, the covenant with, with God was, was sealed in, in a way. Israel's elders had a meal with God on Mount Sinai in the presence of God, celebrating the old covenant. And that, that meal that they had was memorialized uh, and celebrated in the tabernacle, in the bread of the presence, and in the temple with the bread of the presence. And we have a meal with God in the new temple, the church, in celebration of the new covenant. All right, so more parallels. Uh, Israel had the Passover lamb whenever they ate the Passover. And Jesus fulfilled that that law, that ordinance, by becoming the Passover lamb for us. Uh, Paul, Paul talks about this. He, is, he says he is our Passover lamb. So just as the blood was painted over the door and it protected the Israelites from the, the wrath of God, Jesus' blood over the church protects the church from the wrath of God. And just as Israel then ate that lamb, so we also consume Christ, but we don't eat lamb. Do you remember this discussion when we were in Matthew? We don't eat lamb for our Lord's Supper meal. Interesting. We don't eat lamb. Why? Because the Christ was risen. You don't eat a, a risen lamb. He still he lives. Yeah. So uh, instead, we we consume Christ as the bread of life. Uh, so it's sort of a a, a little switch there. Um, but it, Christ has been raised from the dead. So we don't eat something that is dead. Uh, we eat the bread of the presence in His temple. Christ is with us through the Spirit, when we eat the bread. So Christ is present with us in the church, His temple. We eat the bread in His temple, in His presence. That's the Lord's Supper bread. 
Any questions on all of those crazy connections? Not crazy, but yeah, they're all they're all really neat. Uh, the 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 fulfillment of the Old Testament signs and ordinances are all fulfilled in Christ, and then we celebrate that at the table. So as we look at the big picture, the key moment when everything changed from Israel and all of their many laws and ordinances and traditions to the fulfilling of what all of that was pointing to was what event? When did the Passover lamb, the cross, all right? So the cross is when all of this was fulfilled. All of these things were pointing to the cross that was to come. So the, the celebration of the Passover was fulfilled at the cross when the Lamb of God was crucified. The old tabernacle in the temple model that, that, that uh, when God's people would go in, into the presence of God in the tabernacle and temple, that ended with the cross, hence the, the tearing of the, of, of the curtain, when Christ became the new temple. So all of the, all, everything that the, temp, the old temple represented ends when Christ dies on the cross and becomes the new temple for us. The water from the rock was always pointing forward to Jesus. That's what Paul was, ta or Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 10. The manna from heaven was always pointing forward to Jesus. And it was at the cross when Jesus was perfected, as we saw in Hebrews several months ago, um, when he was perfected as the Christ. That's when the Messiah rescue mission was completed. Any questions about all those parallels? Is it too much? No? It's all right? Okay. We've learned to read the Bible this way. Um, you, you could make the argument that at the cross, the cornerstone for the construction of the church was created the moment that Jesus breathed his last at his death. That was when we moved in redemptive history from Old Covenant to New Covenant. And I say that at that moment the church was created, or at least the cornerstone foundation was laid, then rather than at Pentecost was because of what happens in Ephesians or what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2. So if, someone, if, you, if you'll turn to Ephesians chapter 2, and you're thinking, what does this have to do with the Lord's Supper? We're getting there. I promise. So we're going from, the, the, the picture I'm trying to paint for you is all of these signs, Passover, water from the rock, manna from heaven, all of these things are fulfilled in Christ that is realized for us at the cross. And then at the cross, the new covenant begins. And so then at the same time, a new covenant people are created. And we see this in Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. All right, so there was a time when Gentiles were not a part of the 
benefits of being the people of God. Can we agree that that's basically what that says? Yeah, any questions or pushback or clarifications there? All right, so there, there was a time before the cross. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by what? The blood of Christ. When was the blood of Christ poured out? At the cross and kind of at the ascension, but at the cross. <laughs> so the, the, the cross of Christ was when the people of God who were far off were brought near. For he himself is our peace. So Christ is our peace, who has made us both one. We, we who were not one have become one. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So the two were Gentiles and Jews, and he is creating in his body through the breaking of his body, the pouring out of his blood, one man from the two. He's creating, what do we call that? The body of Christ, another name for that would be the church, which is why I would say that the church is created at the death of Christ. All right, so let's, let's keep going. Um, and he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. There's the cross again, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, that's us Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, that's the Jews. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So there's one, one Christ, there's one spirit, there's one Father. Uh, we're all one body in Christ is what he's saying here. Made possible and actualized by the cross of Christ. So it's at the cross that the people of God, who would be the church, was created. Um, any, does that trouble anybody? All right, now more happens at Pentecost. All right, something wonderful happens at Pentecost. So the, the people are created at the cross, um, but it is not until Pentecost that the people are filled with the Holy Spirit, which makes the people building blocks in the temple because the temple is the, 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 the dwelling place of the glory of God, which is who is the Spirit. Uh, so uh, that was a lot right there for you, but are you tracking with me still? So Pentecost, Spirit comes down, indwells the people of God, and the people of God are now the temple in the same way that, that Christ is the temple, because that's the dwelling place of the Spirit. All right, so this is the new covenant people of God. Gentiles and Jews in Christ brought together. This is the church. Um, now, like I said, the Spirit has to come down and indwell the people of God, make them Christ's body, His temple. But with Christ's death, the old temple ended, the new temple began, and the old people of God were united uh, to the new people of God as, as one people. We became a, a new people. Um, any questions? This seems like you guys already know this or something. Maybe, maybe, maybe you do. Um, or am I confusing you? I'm just going to keep pressing. All right, so you got one new people of God created by the cross. Um, this is why when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we say with Paul from 1 Corinthians 11, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
And we're going to get to 1 Corinthians 11 in a moment, but you have in 1 Corinthians 11 this, this church who's disunified or not unified, and Paul reminds them of what the Lord's Supper is, and he points to the cross, because at the cross is when they were made one body, and that when they eat the Lord's Supper, they're to be, participate as one body. So you're, we're, we're proclaiming the Lord's death, because at the Lord's death, we were made the church. We were made one body. Um, it is at his death that the bread and the cup have any significance, or because of his death that the bread and the cup have any significance, because that's when we became the people of God. And then there's also that word until. So this just gets us a little bit further in understanding the Lord's Supper. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What does that mean? What's going to happen when he comes? Yeah, so we'll be raised and, and we won't be eating the, the pilgrim supper anymore. We'll have, we'll have the, the, the wedding feast. We'll have, look, why don't you turn to Isaiah 25 for us, Mark? Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 8. Please, read aloud for the people in the back. <laughs> okay. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people the feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, bowl of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. That's right. Okay. Are we living in that reality yet? Yeah, well, kind of, but not, not like, really, no. I mean, yeah, death is still happening, right? So death is, that death, the final enemy, has not yet been destroyed, uh, and, and, and Christ has not yet returned. We have not had the wedding supper of the Lamb. So Isaiah 25 is, is repeated again in Revelation 19, this, this great wedding supper of the Lamb. We're going to enjoy that in the future. So I guess... In a sense, if we're looking at all of redemptive history and we're looking at how the Lord's Supper fits into that, it's sort of a rest stop in the in-between times. It's a rest stop in redemptive history. God has brought us thus far. He's brought us, uh, he's brought his people from Passover. He's brought his people through the wilderness. He's brought his people into the land. He's brought his people in, out into the exile and back into the land. And then the Christ has come and brought the good news to all the nations. So that's where we are now. And Christ's coming has fulfilled all of those old ordinances. And now a lot of that is symbolized in our partaking in the Lord's Supper. Like, like we just looked at, all of the things that are fulfilled in Christ that we proclaim when we eat the Lord's Supper together. Think manna, water from the rock, Passover lamb bread of the presence, all that stuff, Lord's Supper, all right? So he's brought us thus far, but there is still further to go. We're not at that great wedding feast yet, but we are eating now, memorializing many uh, Christ's accomplishments of all of these other realities and looking forward to what Christ will accomplish in the future. That's why I call it a rest stop. We're resting in Christ, we stopped along the way, eating, we're stopping and eating, 
and resting in Christ and, and, and acknowledging what he has accomplished and what he will accomplish, and we do that, you go back to that rest stop again and again and again and again and again and again, proclaiming what he's accomplished at the cross and what he will accomplish at his return. All right, so the, the Lord's Supper looks back and the Lord's Supper looks, looks forward. Uh, and, and we do that until, as Paul says, until his return, until we have arrived, or he has arrived, uh, and, and brings with him the wedding supper of the Lamb. And at that point, uh, just as we don't celebrate the Passover meal anymore, because it has been fulfilled, we, don't, we won't celebrate the Lord's Supper anymore because it will be fulfilled in the wedding feast. I mean, the Lord's Supper is great, but I mean, heaven just getting by on those, you know, those crackers. Yeah, that, it's, uh, yeah, it, it always keeps you longing for more, which is, which is good. So now the question is, who does that? Who is it who celebrates and remembers the work of Christ to redeem us from sin? Who celebrates that? Just this question for you. Yeah, the church. Christians do. In fact, that's pretty core to what it means to be a Christian. I'm celebrating the work of Christ on the cross and the work of Christ in my life and eating the Lord's Supper. Christians celebrate that. And who is eating in Christ's presence through the work of the Holy Spirit? Christians, those who have been born again by the Spirit and who are indwelt by the Spirit. All right, so we can't really celebrate Christ's work for us if we don't believe Christ did work for us. And we can't eat in the presence of God by the power of the Holy Spirit in us if we don't have the Holy Spirit in us. So that's why we would say, and we say it every, every month, the Lord's Supper is for Christians. Um, is, is there any question about that or any discussion about that? Maybe if I said it too forcefully and you feel intimidated, don't. You can push me back. It's all right. I, yes, Christian. That's good. And 1 Corinthians 11 will address that because we should uh, examine ourselves. And that's exactly what it means to examine ourselves, is to determine whether or not we're a Christian. We test ourselves. Uh, and so I think uh, on that question, knowing how to best test ourselves, um, just going back to, to Josh's sermon Sunday uh, or any, anything that he's preached through 1 John. 1 John is the, the assurance book, the testing book. That, that we look to. Um, and so we, we, would, we would encourage someone who is in that position uh, to, actually, we'll just get to that when we get there later on in 1 Corinthians 11, but we would encourage them to, um, as pastorally, I would want to help them to see what are the marks of a Christian so that they would have something to, to help them with their assurance. Yeah. And it's not all it's not all something they've done, right? It's, it's going back to Christ's work at all else. So, um, Any other questions about who should partake in the supper? We're just on the regard, regarding the issue of Christians, born-again Christians. Yes, Andy. Uh-huh. Yeah. 
Yeah, so there's the, the passage in Matthew about bringing a offering and having hardness in your heart towards your brother, going and reconciling with your brother first and then coming to, to make the offering. A lot of times it's applied to the Lord's Supper. Um, and there's some wisdom in that. Uh, it's not specifically spoken of regarding the Lord's Supper. When we get to 1 Corinthians 11 in a moment, we'll see more about that issue. Um, but certainly unity is, the, is our next subject here. And the unity of the church is another key component of what's happening at the Lord's Supper. So it's not just, not that that's a little thing, all of the fulfillment of the Old Testament in Christ uh, being celebrated at the Lord's Supper, but it's, and it's not just our being united to Christ, but it's also what Christ has done to bring us together, getting back to Ephesians 2. So we'll get to that in a moment. Other questions on... Uh, or, or, or even even pushback that you've heard that, uh, for instance, I I was at a church for a number of years that used the Lord's Supper um, as an invitation. Have you heard that before, or been at a church where that was done before? Um, so the, the 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 logic behind it is uh, this is your opportunity to receive Christ today, and what better way to receive Christ than by receiving His His body and blood. Uh, in the in the cup in the in the bread, and so it was uh, kind of an altar call of sorts. Um, the reason that I don't do that um, is one because uh, in, in Acts chapter two, when after Peter's sermon, when he preaches and, and proclaims the gospel to the people, and and they uh, say, "What must we do?" Does he say, "Now come take the Lord's supper"? No. What does he say? Repent and be baptized. So repentance and, and, and baptism are the first steps towards that belonging. And so just following the model that, that the early church gives us, that's one reason. Another reason is the, the, the things that I've just told you, um, that this is those who uh, know that they're Christians and the church knows that they're Christians and they're participating together. And this unity issue is another really important one. So that kind of leads us to the next, um, next issue. So, so the, ne the, the, the question to move us along to the next point, with whom do these born-again Christians enjoy this meal? With one another, with the church. Right, so the quick answer is the local church. But it's going to take us a minute to get there. We, we kind of know that instinctively, uh, but we're going to stay in 1 Corinthians for this. We, so we read last month from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I want to look at a couple verses from that uh, passage again. So look back with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 uh, and 17. Look at 16 first. Now, uh, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So we know what the, the cup is there. We know what the blood is there. We've talked about that. We talked about that participation last week or last month. But what does body mean in verse 16? The body of Christ. Any guesses? Well, probably like first and foremost, his body. Amen. There you go. Christ himself. That's right. Uh, but secondarily, the church, right? So the body of Christ, the church. So we're, what, what Paul's saying there is we're participating 
in Christ's body, similar to the way that we participate in, in, in his blood. Um, but we're also participating in his blood, uh, in his body, receiving the benefits of his blood as his body. So, so think of a human body. Um, your body needs blood to live. That's a really important concept in the, in, in the Old Testament. Uh, the, the blood is the life. So the blood is the life of the body. So what Paul's doing, he's kind of telling us, giving us two meanings here at the same time. We are, we are nourished and kept alive as his body is nourished and kept alive by his blood. Uh, but we're also nourished by his body. So the body means the church, but the body also means Christ. It's a, it's a double meaning there that is meant to push us a little bit more, more uh, further along in his argument. Up to this point in 1 Corinthians, uh, he has not made the argument that the church is the body of Christ. He hasn't said that yet. We're kind of familiar with that because how many times have you heard the we're all members of one body sermon? Like that, that one preaches. It's, it's we all belong. Like you, you might be a hand, you might be a foot, you might be a nose, you might be an ear or a mouth, but, but we all belong to one, one body in Christ. Well, Paul hasn't gotten to that yet for the Corinthian church. That comes in chapter 12. So they're reading this and they're thinking, body, well, he sounds like he means like two different things here. What does he mean? Uh, he hasn't introduced that, that big idea yet, but he's hinting at it here. And then in verse 17, he, he really gives it to us that the body means more than one thing. The body of Christ means more than one thing. Because, look at verse 17, because there is one bread, so that word because is a grounding word, right? The, the, you see that? Because there's one bread. Okay, so now because there's one bread, something else is true. What else is true? Because there's one bread. Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So follow the logic. What or who is the bread here in verse 17? Christ is the bread. Christ is the bread. And because there is one Christ, there's one body of Christ, we, when we are in Christ, when we are nourished by him, we are one body, and that's the spiritual reality that's created. So, so Christ, the bread of life, remember he's the bread of life, he makes the many people, we who are many, the many people gathered together become the one body because of his work. Also, Ephesians 2. So, when, so we show that, we show that reality, that spiritual reality of our spiritual unity in Christ. We show that when we eat the bread together. We show our unity, we show our participation together as one body. And that's why we take the bread at Del Cerro, that's why we take the bread together. Uh, so, so, there, so there's two things happening with the Lord's Supper. The individual, individual Christian, the born-again Christian, is strengthened in his or her understanding of, of their union with Christ uh, when they participate in the table. There's that spiritual reality. When, when, when you as a Christian partake in the table, you are in the presence of Christ, and that meal is feeding you, is feeding your soul. In, in a way that other meals don't. Your, your soul is being fed as an individual at the table. But you're also, um, when you take that bread, 
with the rest of the church, you are attesting to, you're professing, proclaiming that you are one body with the rest of the church. All right? So there's the, there's the spiritual unity you have with Christ that you are professing when you eat the bread and take the cup, and the spiritual unity you have with the rest of the body of Christ, with the church, when you take the bread and the cup. All right? So that's a big, the, it, it's equal in terms of its importance in our understanding of the Lord's Supper. We, I think sometimes we, we focus on the individual in the, in the, the individual reality when we're, we're taking the Lord's Supper. But Paul is really saying you've got to see both of these here. Because he, when, when Christ died on the cross, he just didn't save you. He saved the entire church. His blood is for the whole church, which is why earlier in 1 Corinthians, when, when, uh, when there's an issue with, with some people eating meat sacrificed to idols, and there's some Christians in the church who just don't even care, that they're causing another brother to stumble. He says, you would do that to another one for whom Christ died? So, so he really wants to emphasize here, not just your salvation, but the church's salvation, the corporate salvation. And the, uh, the, the Lord's Supper is the place where we testify to that. Uh, it is the, uh, it's one of the fundamental meanings, and it's why uh, if, if you've wondered why we didn't do this during COVID, I know there was this question. So we had a lot of people that weren't gathering with the church during that time, right? A lot of people staying home. Um, and some people ask, well, can't we take some of the, the, you know, some bread and a cup to someone at home and just give it to them at home? That is overdoing it on the individual side and minimizing the togetherness aspect of the Lord's Supper. Uh, and, and Paul teaches both as equal. We can't do one and, and, and ignore the other here. Uh, it's also why we don't encourage people, I have not forbade this, but we don't encourage people who are live streaming at home to take the Lord's Supper on their own. The visible bread is a testimony to our visible oneness, our visible togetherness as a church. Any questions on that? I know you're burning. Yes, go, Mike. <laughs> so what about bound person? Yeah. They're no longer taking communion with their church. They've been there for 10 years. They've been there for 50 years. Mm -hmm. and so now you're unable, um, not because you're scared, but you're, you're widowed or you're a widower. Mm -hmm. You're incapacitated, not able to drive. And the church steps away from you and says, um, we're not going to send some of the pastors or a group of the church to sit with you and celebrate the Lord's Passover. It's a great question. Good question. Anybody else have that question? That you do, Susie? Okay. All right. Thought you might. <laughs> Dustin? <laughs> You're going to answer that one. Well, answer that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's a, it's a great question, though. There, I mean, there is a very early tradition of taking the elements of the sick. Yep. The, the, mm -hmm. Yep. Um, we have not done that. I think I, I, I'm with you, Mike, in the sense that if we could get uh, a contingent of people to do it. So enough, I don't know what that looks like, a quorum. Rod, define the quorum for us. Uh, if we could get a quorum of that, that was a, su a, a sufficient gathering of the local church in order to do that, to show, to, to still be able to profess the unity of the body with that person, I think we could do that. Yes. 
Aha. Uh -huh. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. So, so there is an element that we're also pushing back against as Baptists. All right. So, uh, as as Baptists, we do we 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 have a somewhat sacramental understanding of the Lord's Supper, but we do not believe that it uh, in the the Catholic understanding of the Lord's Supper. I'm not saying that this is what I don't know if you're a Catholic or not, but um, but there there is an understanding that is a little bit. Um, more sacramental with regarding the Lord's Supper in that the Lord's Supper is, an, is another application of the grace that you need to enter heaven. Uh, and that if, if you can compile enough of this grace, then you will have enough to, to make it. Uh, and, and so we don't believe that uh, about the Lord's Supper. We, we, we believe that the Lord's Supper is, is a testimony to Christ's work for us uh, as the body of Christ and to his ongoing work for us as we continue to grow as Christians. It is nourishing. And so there is that element of it that I would want to somehow be able to not keep from a, um, from a, from a homebound person. I think part of the issue too is the question has been, is there a nourishing element of the Lord's Supper that's also not found in the preached word? Uh, in um, scripture. Yep. How you answer that question will depend what you do. That's right. So we we would emphasize the proclamation of the word, which is why I'm glad you, when you when you go, you're reading the word to them because the the word is what nourishes the soul, uh, and and it's the the bread and the cup are a kind of a, a symbol of of what is happening in the word. It's a it's a picture of the spirit's nourishment of us from from the from the word. Yes, go ahead, Kelly. Yes. Those who are at home watching on, on video. Uh huh. Why shouldn't they participate with bread and juice from their own home? Mm -hmm. And do it at the same time. Would that yeah. still be a partaking in the Lord's Supper with the church? Even though they're at home, it's on, they're doing it at the same time as everybody else. Yeah, I said I don't encourage it. I said, I, but I did not say I would. Not, I would forbid it. I, I think that I'm going to leave that to the person's conscience. But, but I really want us to see, and, and let, let me continue in 1 Corinthians 11, and we'll see the importance of this. I really want us to see that Paul is front-loading the unity and the gathering of the local church with the Lord's Supper. Right. I meant just for those who cannot be there. Cannot. Okay. Cannot. I'll think about that. Well, I don't. Then. 1 Corinthians 11, because I think if we can keep going 11, hold on, Rod, let me keep going in 11, and I think this might clarify some of these issues. My point is I want us to see how important this is to 
the Apostle Paul, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, and so his, his understanding of this regards the togetherness and the gathering of the local church. So um, let's think about just uh, th th this a little bit further. That it, it's, this is so true, this, this visible bread being a testimony to our visible oneness, our togetherness. It's so true that a brand new baby church plant, so think of a baby church plant. Think of you know a friend of yours that might be maybe planting a church. That brand new baby church plant isn't a church until the many have become one in the supper. All right, you tracking with me? When when does it when does your gathering of local uh, of individual Christians become one body? Well, there's a sense in which they've been created as one body when they were born again into Christ. They're part of the universal body of Christ. But when are they testifying publicly that we are one body? When they take the Lord's Supper. When they take the Lord's Supper, because that is the public profession of their oneness together as a church. There's a, there's a similarity there to baptism. Are you, you feeling that? A new Christian isn't a Christian publicly until baptism. Right, it is. It is the uh, until she's baptized. When it, when a Christian is born again by the Spirit, and, and then goes public, as we say, they they are outwardly testifying to the inward reality. We say that a lot as as, as Baptists. So it's baptism is that moment when we say to all the world, all the watching world, I've been born again. I, I'm I'm a Christian. I'm following Christ now. I'm a part of His kingdom now. Um, they, they, uh, when, when they do that, when a person is baptized into Christ, they are baptized into his body, and that one person through baptism is then bound, they're connected to the many, right? So that's, that, that happens. Likewise, a gathering of believers may be spiritually one. There's, there may be a spiritual reality that they are one because of the work of the Spirit in them, causing them to be born again into Christ, but then they testify to that oneness reality by participating in the bread and the cup at the Lord's table. The many become one. Bobby Jameson puts it like this. He says, baptism binds the one to the many. The Lord's Supper binds the many into the one. You hear that? See how that works? You like that, don't you, Josh? Yeah, he's nodding his head. That's a good one. That, I, I didn't write that one, so, but I couldn't, I couldn't keep it out. Uh, he's a, Bobby Jamison is a, is a great writer. Pray for him. He's trying to, he's trying to plant a church or, or pastor a church in, in SoCal. So uh, it'd be great to have his family out here. So we're getting all of that. All of that that I just taught you uh, is coming from verse 17. Yes. What about the couple... Wedding. Yeah, I did that too. I shouldn't have done it. Yeah. I thought of that at the time. Uh -huh. I've seen it. Yeah. Thinking, what's the purpose? Is it a symbol of their pride? It's just, it shouldn't be done. No. Yes, Mark. And I would not let anyone do that who is getting married here. Uh, okay. Yeah. Comes from this very like this mentality of the Lord's Supper 
just for me as an individual person. Yep. Um, which obviously we're it's it's more than that. We're saying yes and. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, 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 this is is. A lot of these questions, a lot of these concerns are, are your American individualistic um, self pushing back against the corporate nature of Christianity. And it's really hard for us as, as, uh, as Westerners who have been just steeped in you are special, you are good, you are wonderful, you will self-actualize if you follow your heart's desires. It's really hard for us to, to see that the scriptures want nothing of that way of thinking. The scriptures, the Christianity is, is wholly uh, uh, corporate in nature. Christ is saving a people. Yes, he saved you as an individual, but he's saving a people, a church, which is why we have a church and not a lot of people watching, preaching on YouTube. This is, this, there's something that happens when the Spirit is presence, present in, in, in the body of Christ together that cannot happen when you're on your own. And that's why we gather together as a church. All right, so I, I know I'm getting a little forceful there, but th this is uh, it's just helping you to see some of the way that our world is shaping you in ways that you don't even know. Yes, go ahead. I guess the question that helps solve both the wedding thing Homebound thing. Okay. So we've established that who takes it is Jesus. Mm -hmm. He leads them local body, mm -hmm. sounds like. And I we haven't gotten to it yet, but I would assume we want to exclude people who are visiting or mm -hmm. external visiting as long as they're Jesus. Yeah. I guess the question that helps answer both of those is what do we consider the gathering of the church? So when you go to the homebound, uh -huh. is it is that a church? Yeah. The same body together. Mm -hmm. If it's a wedding, some people can look at the wedding as a worship service. Yes. Worship. Yep. So therefore, I wouldn't totally say it's totally wrong mm -hmm. to, to participate as a whole. Yep. If, if everyone's partaking. Yep. Mm -hmm. Believers specifically, obviously the guests at the wedding are like. So I guess my question is, what is considered the gathering of the local church, and who are we to? Determine that in mm -hmm. the sense of when we're talking about these things, because just because this local church right now, I'd say this is the gathering of our local church. True, and we had a meal. We had a meal. Yeah, and some green tea. Yeah, that. I mean it's a <laughs> gathering, but you don't have all of your members here currently. Yep. Are we going to exclude this as we can't take the supper because we're not all here? Yeah. Are we going to take the supper? We could take the supper because this is a worship gathering together. That's exactly the question. I think that's the question. Yep. Really hard and fast on. We're not going to take it to the one person. We're not going to do it as a couple of individuals. Individualistic. Yep. But really, it's what is considered a gathering, and who defines that? Yep. I guess that's a good question. We'll have to answer that another time. I think you're. I think. I think you're nailing exactly where the tension is with the Lord's Supper. How is that wrong? So, yeah, so does the college, should the college group take it when they're gathering on, on Thursday nights? Should the youth group take it, you know, when they're at camp together? Should, uh, there's, there's, this brings in all sorts of those, okay, so some Christians came together. Um, I think one of the keys is our understanding of what it means to be a church together. And, and, and so membership is, is a key here.
And it, if it sounds like we're mo moving towards membership, members only for communion, we're not yet. But that, that's, uh, that's a part of that discussion. Uh, Rod, you had a question? Yeah. That's what she's asking, too. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. That's true. Yep. And I think those two would be gathering or recognizing that they're in Christ's name. And if they're going to take the Lord's Supper, that that, that few people are, are going to take the Lord's Supper, they would have to agree that what, what they're testifying to, in that sense. Yep. Yep. No, it's not. Mm -hmm. Yep. Absolutely. Because, because especially in the example that Mike was giving, someone who's been a member of the church for 50 years, they, they have been a part of the body of Christ. I, I would hope that a, a church that is, is that way and that thinks that carefully about caring for one another and has been taking the Lord's Supper together for that many years together, they would be grieving for that person who was not able to be there and they would be visiting them, 100%. Yeah, yes. If you're looking uh. at the church as a whole, when I go to my sister's church and I take the Lord's Supper, I participate. Uh-huh. I'm still part of their body. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yes. Uh, one, one more comment, and then we're going to keep going in, in chapter 11. Josh, John. Yes. So that's in the section where he talks about discipline. Two or three witnesses. Yep. Necessary. So mm -hmm. two or three isn't talking about the church. It's talking about the Lord's discipline. Is if two or three go to the Lord, then Jesus is there. Yes, he is. That's true. So let's. um. Um, let's, let's keep going. I want to get us to chapter 11, and, and we'll, we'll have to do this quick. But um, so Paul is expound. He's going to take in chapter 10. He's telling. He gives us. He drops that little that little truth bomb of of the bread making us one, or that we are one body because there's one bread. And then he's going to take that little seed of an idea and he's going to blow it up in chapter 11. So something is happening. Uh, the reason why he has to do this is something is happening in this local church, the, the Corinthian church. That, that, that is so reprehensible um, that Paul says that when you gather, speaking to this church, um, it's not good. It is, it is for the, it's not for the better, it's for the worse. Look at uh, verse 7, so chapter 11, um, verse 17, 11, 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, this is talking about the, the gathering of the church. When they come together, it is not for the better, but for the worst. Now, what's happening when, when they're coming together? Uh, one would think that gathering together as the body of Christ, taking the Lord's Supper, proclaiming Christ's work for us in forgiving our sins and making us one together as one body in Christ, we who were many are now one, you would think that that would be a good thing. Like that would always be better. You would always leave. It would be better. Uh, like, like I hope our Sundays are. I hope our, our Sunday gatherings uh, are for the better. 
not for the worse. So you'd think it'd be a good thing whenever the Corinthian church gathers, but that's not what's happening with them. First of all, Paul says that there are factions in the church. Look at verse 18. When you come together, I hear that there are divisions among you. I believe it in part, he says. So there's, there's a division in the church. There's major problems. They are not maintaining the unity of the Spirit as they ought to be. Uh, the, the Spirit has made them one, uh, but they're not maintaining that and not even making an effort to maintain that. They're instead like putting a bulwarks between each other. So when the world looks at the Corinthian church, so outsiders are looking at that church, and they know about them. They're, you know, close, close to their neighbors. When the, when the world looks at that church, they see a bunch of little groups, little factions, little schisms, little cliques. They don't see one body. They're resenting one another. The people in the church are resenting one another when, because of Christ's work, they should be loving one another. So look at, look at 17 through 19. So they are, there's these, uh, there's, there's factions in the church. And then in verse 19, he says, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you must be recognized. Don't really know what he means by that. We're going to keep going. Uh, so it gets worse. Um, it's not just that there are little schisms. It's not that just there are little cliques in the church when they come together. Um, when they come together for the Lord's Supper, which presumably from what it looks like in the text, looks like it's every time they're together. Uh, they're not even coming together for the, the Lord's Supper. They're eating separate suppers. They're eating on their own as individuals, as, as little groups, rather than all together. And this is, this is why I was saying that this is a big emphasis for Paul. This togetherness is a big deal for him here. So uh, look at verses 20 through 22. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. So it's not the Lord's meal you're eating. You're eating your own meal. So it's you know, the potluck that we all brought together and we're all sharing together, it would be a, you brought that meal and you just sat at your table and you ate it all by yourself. You're eating your own meal uh, rather than all, all together. Um, they're, they're eating them separately. Let's see, where were we? Um, verse 21, he eats his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. We'll talk about in a moment what's happening there. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Now he's mad. Uh, this is the, that exclamation point is not a happy exclamation point. Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So this is, this is Paul's angry voice. He's upset with this church because of what is supposed to be happening at the Lord's Supper is a proclamation of their unity in Christ. They're not doing that. They're not proclaiming their unity in Christ. Instead, they're treating this meal like it's any other meal, like it's any other cultural meal that, that, they, that they would be having together. So it's, um, we don't know exactly what's happening here. Uh, I've told you before, I think, that some believe that the wealthier Christians uh, were getting their fellowship potluck meal started early. Um, so by the time that the working class got off work and were able to gather with the rest of the church, the Corinthians had eaten all of the ribs and fried chicken and drank it, all the wine. And the only thing left was like some store-bought broccoli casserole and that was cold and it smelled bad. So, so, so you have some who are eating the good stuff and some who are left to kind of the crumbs that are left over and definitely all, all the wine is gone. The, the, the other people are already drunk. Could be something like that. Some, some historians uh, believe that something else was happening. They say, but because of the the cultural system, because of the class system that was in place 
uh, the host of the home church. So if this church was going to gather in a city like this, they were going to have to gather in someone's house, someone's estate that was, someone had a big house, all right? And that would probably be one of the major patrons uh, that was well-known in the city. And so those people who were connected with the patron, connected with the homeowner, would be welcomed into the big part of the house where the big meal was. And the people who were not connected because of their, you know, their class or uh, they, didn't have the, they didn't come from the right family or whatever it was, they were left outside kind of in the atrium or in the courtyard area. And so there are some who say, based on Corinthian culture, that could have been what was happening. You had basically two gatherings, one gathering of all the wealthy people with all the good food, and then the poor people who really needed to be uh, being served and helped by the, the wealthier were just left whatever they could bring together. So that could be what, what's happening there. Um, we don't know exactly. All we know is that it was ugly. It was not unified. Some are hungry. Some are drunk. And that's sort of the, can't believe this is happening uh, in this church that Paul loves so much. Things have gotten this bad. So he's upset. Uh, that's why he says, you're not eating the Lord's Supper. You're eating your own meal. You're doing this um, like any other meal that you'd have in Corinth. So, so they're treating it just like their, their potlucks at work. Uh, they're, they're treating it like when they go to a family meal you know, at Thanksgiving with their family, and Paul's just so upset that they are misunderstanding or, or knowingly disobeying everything that he taught them about the Lord's Supper. Um, they, uh, they're making the, the sacred profane in what they're doing, Treat, cheating something that is supposed to be holy and really important as for the church uh, and, and unifying for the church and they're taking that away and, and making, a, making kind of a joke out of it. So it's, um, he's trying to remind him that this meal is a different meal. This is different. And, and, and they're, they're missing that. And so in order to teach them how it's different, look where he goes. Verse 23. This came from Jesus. This meal that I taught you to have together as a church, Jesus is the one who instituted this. I didn't make this stuff up. This isn't just me, you guys. This is Jesus who has brought this to you. He instituted this meal. Look at verses 23 through 26. You'll know this when we read this every month. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, so what's he doing? He's reminding them of the significance of the meal and its connection to the cross. He's reminding them, you don't exist as a church were it not for the cross of Christ, right? He's taking them back to their roots. You, you're, you're, you didn't get here on your own. Christ created you as a body on the cross. And when you take the Lord's Supper together, you're proclaiming that. So he, he's insisting on reminding them of that. It's, it's a celebration. The meal is a celebration and a remembrance of what happened at the cross. And we are tempted, I think, be, again, because of our, our individualism is to say, okay, yeah, our sins were forgiven at the cross. That's the Lord's Supper. That's why we, we take it. There's more to that, though, isn't there? 
Because of what we saw earlier, it's more, the cross is more than the forgiveness of sins. Because we become one body at the cross. There is a horizontal element or a vertical element, right, Rod? Vertical element and, and a horizontal element that happens at the cross. We are united to Christ. Sins are forgiven. We're brought into God's presence, but we are brought together as the body of Christ. Um, we're brought into fellowship and communion with God, and we're brought into fellowship and communion with one another. So this meal that we take represents all that the cross, all that Christ has accomplished at the cross, not just some of it. So, so if we take the meal without proclaiming the, the unity that we have together as the church, then we're only proclaiming half of the gospel. You get it? See, see what Paul's getting at here? That's what he's telling this church. You guys think this is all for you as individuals. No, no, no. This is for you as a body, all together. Therefore, if you eat the meal profanely, this is important. This is the, this is the next verse, uh, verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of Jesus, of the Lord. So if you eat the meal profanely, like the Corinthians were, I'm not saying someone who eats the Lord's Supper while they're watching the live stream is eating it profanely. I'm just, just saying if you do it like the Corinthians were, this is, that's as far as we can take this. If you eat the meal profanely, if you treat it like any other meal, then you are guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. What does he mean by that? He's saying this. He's saying if, if you... If you th it's like you're saying that the work that Christ accomplished on the cross wasn't actually accomplished. You're guilty of a false testimony of what's happened at the cross. If there's no unity that results from the Lord's Supper, or if there's no unity testified in the Lord's Supper, then the church is proclaiming that Christ actually didn't make us one body. That's pretty grave, isn't it? Do you feel the weight of that? So then, uh, he says, there is a way to take the supper. He's not saying you guys can never have the supper again. What does he do? In verse 28, he looks to restore them. You're, you're doing it in a way that is profaning the body and blood of Christ, and, and you are, uh, you're guilty. And so he says, let me, let me restore you now. This is good. This is Paul. He was angry, but he's not staying angry. He's, he's bringing them back, into, he's reconciling them. Verse 28 tells us how, how we ought to do this. Um, Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. All right, so examine yourself. What does that mean? It gets back to Christian's question earlier. We're supposed to do that, Christian. We're supposed to examine ourselves. The word examine here means to test and see if you're a genuine Christian. That's all, that's all this. It does not mean getting back to uh, what sometimes we, we look at this and go, did I sin this week? Oh, I sinned this week. Therefore, oh, I can't partake. It's not what that means. It's not, that's not it. So, so don't think that if you, you said uh, uh, something you shouldn't have said on the way to church um, out of anger, that you shouldn't then take the supper. That that's what, what we're trying to look at here is whether or not we're Christians. Now, what do Christians do when they have sinned? They repent, right. So if, if you recognize in your sin, you've repented of your sin, then yes, take the supper. 
But if you are living in unrepentant sin, and you're, so you're examining yourself at that moment, and you know, look, I have this, this sin that I'm regularly giving into, and I like it. And, and this, is, this, is, this, is, this is what characterizes me. Then, then you would say, probably not in Christ. Probably uh, you would fail that self-examination. Um, so there are some, some tests that uh, self-examination tests, what do these look like? First John is a good place to start. So, so read and study First John. Uh, if, if you have trouble understanding it, read it with another brother or sister in Christ. Uh, if uh, Josh is very good with First John, so uh, I'm sure he would love to walk with you in First John. I would too. So if, if, if you read First John and you get it, praise God. If you need some help with it, get some help. That's what we're all here for as a body. Um, but but first John, what you're going to see there is you're going to see, are you, with regards to this test of whether or not you're in Christ, are you believing that Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, that He's the Son of God? That's one of the tests to see if you're a Christian in First John. Yes. Let's keep going on. Do you confess that He is Lord? Is He the Christ? Is He truly the Christ? Yes. Let's keep going. Does the Spirit in you testify to you and give you assurance? Yes. Let's keep going. So does Christ? Through your abiding in Him, thinking of Sunday, through your abiding in Him, does, does Christ bear out the fruit of obedience in your life? So you're, you're born again Christian, you have the Holy Spirit, you're abiding in Christ, you're trusting in Christ, you're looking to Christ as your source of all life, and is that producing in you the fruit of obedience? If yes, you're a Christian, then you pass the, the self-examination test. Um, and and this, this, to get to another... Well, we'll drop, we'll drop it here because it's time to go. We're, we're going to drop it right here with this little bomb because getting back to that, does Christ, through your abiding him, in Him, bear out the fruit of obedience in your life is the question. Now let's think about obedience. Was the first thing that Christ says to do upon repentance and faith? Baptism. Okay. So. We need to understand. Go and we'll talk. We're going to wait till a whole nother month to talk about this. But I want to leave you with this and let you just chew on it. It's a big piece of fatty meat. You're just going to chew on for a meat for 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 a month. So, if baptism is 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 an act of obedience, and if we are examining ourselves to see whether or not we are in Christ and living our, in obedience to Christ, um. That, that raises a question about whether the unbaptized should take the Lord's Supper. It introduces that question. You can be a Christian without being baptized. Yes, yes. But you need to understand that Christ has commanded that you be baptized. Matthew chapter 28, uh, Acts chapter 2, it, it is, it's normative for Christians to be baptized. It is commanded that Christians would be baptized. Uh, so. It, baptism is the first act of obedience. It is the public declaration of the faith that you've been given. So self-examination might involve asking yourself this question. If you're not, if you've not been baptized, self-examination would be asking yourself the question, why? Why am I living in open disobedience and defiance of Christ and yet claiming him as my own? at the same time, by eating of the supper. 
That's the question I'll leave you with, all right? So it's just self-examination is asking that question one. And that's all the time we have tonight. Um, that, that was it, that was a fun one. <laughs> thank you, thank you for good, great questions, really good questions. Um, and I think, I love that you were thinking about this out of concern for other people. That, that shows that you love other Christians. You don't want other Christians to be discouraged or downcast. And that is what you're expressing with, with your, with your um, questions about those who are homebound, those who are uh, sick, and, and so on. So and that, that is a very good instinct. Uh, that's a spiritual instinct as a Christian. So I, I affirm that in you and commend that. So let, let's pray. Uh, Lord, we are we're grateful that you have given us your word, that you do not leave us here all on our own to figure out these things just based on our uh, own desires and what we think is best, uh, but you have clearly instructed us. So Lord, I pray that, that as we look to your word as, as brothers and sisters and as individuals, um, you would be shaping us by your word and you would give us the the time and the thoughtfulness to, to dwell on your word, not just read through it quickly, but see what the implications are, to see what you mean by these things. And um, we thank you that your Holy Spirit helps us in this. And we couldn't do this without your Holy Spirit. So we thank you for sending us the Spirit, keeping the Spirit in us. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.